I'm Damian Bulwa. Today on Fifth and Mission, a day of change and a violent insurrection in the nation's capital. On Wednesday, as Democrats claimed the Senate with a pair of wins in Georgia, a mob of supporters of President Trump stormed the U.S. Capitol. They were urged on by the outgoing president, and they were ignited by his effort to overturn the election of Joe Biden. To talk about it, I'm joined on the podcast by an all-star team. I have Tal Copen, the Chronicle's Washington correspondent, Joe Garofoli, the host of the It's All Political podcast, and editorial page editor John Diaz at The Chronicle. Guys, what a day. Thanks for taking the time. It's, uh, I'd like to say it's great to be here, but it's, uh, it's, it's a sad day. It's a, it's a really sad and, and, and scary day at some, at some level. Yeah, just to let the listeners know, we're talking uh, late on Wednesday, and uh, you know the the actions are still going on, but hopefully the 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 main violence and action we saw is over. Tall, I wanted to start with you. You spoke to people who were there. You spoke to the, some of the California delegation. What did they say? What was it like? Well, it sounds like things were unfolding very quickly and there was a lot of confusion and lawmakers were really all over the complex. Uh, you know, I'm not sure how many of our listeners have been to the Capitol. It's a really unique place. There's the Capitol building where on either side uh, sits the House and Senate chambers. And to get, you know, you have to go through various police checkpoints to get there. Uh, they check IDs at every door on normal days, of course. And then they're connected underground by a tunnel system with uh, several House office buildings where all the lawmakers have offices and several Senate uh, office buildings on the other side where the same applies. The senators have their offices. And so as this was happening, lawmakers were in sort of all those places and their staffs too. Although because of COVID precautions, Nancy Pelosi had ordered the House to only allow 11 members on each side at a time as they were debating the Electoral College certification. Democrats were abiding by that. Republicans weren't. But you know, all members were present on campus, most of them in their offices, so that they could vote on the expected objections. And things sort of seemed tense, but okay in the morning. Uh, you know, I, I was in communication with many of my reporting friends and, and peers and former colleagues who were on the Hill today. They said when they got there, it didn't seem that unusual, Little few small crowds of protesters. After the Trump rally, near the White House, where he said he was going to march to the Capitol with them, they all started moving towards the Capitol. The, you know, House and Senate gaveled in for joint session, then broke off, started debate in their independent sessions. And then all of a sudden, things just seemed to escalate very quickly. There were uh, bomb threats at, that evacuated a couple of the House office buildings, and members were had to evacuate. They were brought back. All of a sudden, Senate and House proceedings were stopped, and the leaders of the chambers were ushered out and escorted by police. Uh, the feeds went down. They recessed. Reporters from inside were sending out messages to their colleagues that they were sheltered in place, that gas masks were being distributed because tear gas was being deployed in the hallways as videos began to filter out through social media of these rioters who had breached the perimeter. I mean, it, it was just an incredible, incredible series of events. And, you know, Jared Huffman, for example, was alone in his office as this all unfolded. He had his staff work from home today, and he was waiting for an opportunity to go to the floor. His particular building was not evacuated. And so he's sitting in 
an empty office alone with the curtains drawn away from the windows, listening to loudspeaker announcements and texting with colleagues and friends and family and getting Capitol Police alerts. Uh, Mike Thompson, his office building was evacuated twice and he moved to a different place on the campus to be secure. The others, Eric Swalwell was on the House floor. Uh, some of our Southern California delegation were on the House floor. Pelosi and McCarthy, uh, as the leaders, were ushered out by police. They sheltered in place. There was an armed standoff at the House doors that they watched unfold. They were given gas masks and told to get ready to use them. Uh, Apparently, uh, a colleague from Arizona, Eric Swalwell said, was helping people figure out how to put them on, uh, mixed in with the press while this is happening. Some of the members were up in the press gallery or up in the gallery with the press watching the proceedings, and they all had to shelter together and evacuate. You know, Pete Aguilar, Pete Aguilar told one of our peers up on the hill that at first they brought them to the cafeteria. It was locked. They were let in. Then they said, no, this isn't where you should be. They moved them again. So, you know, as much as America was sort of watching the events unfold, members of Congress were almost watching them unfold in similar ways, except, you know, through through their phones, through text. But as Huffman put it, they could hear the angry mob shouting outside. He could hear nearly nonstop sirens uh, and occasional explosions. And uh, very surreal is a word he used for sure. Obviously a historic day, but Joe, you wrote about how it wasn't that surprising. It's been a long way coming. There's been a lot of fear that something like this was going to happen. Yeah. And this is uh, Republicans have, uh, this is this on the feet of all the Republicans, which is pretty much all of them who've done nothing to push back on, on the president's lies about how this was a stolen election. I mean, we've, nobody has pushed back on him. Very, very few people. And certainly, um, very few in the California delegation. Uh, there's 11 members. I think two has said that they plan to, uh, uh you know, vote, uh, in favor of certification today and not really protest, protest anything. That's, uh, Tom McClintock and uh, Young Kim, uh, first-termer from uh, Orange County. Uh, but the rest of them has, have enabled the president. They, uh, by, by, and it, it, by saying nothing in many cases. And that's the scary part. This is, uh, this is uh, at their feet, um, and, uh, and they own a lot of responsibility for it. At the same time, uh, sir, you know, right after, you know, the uh, violence erupted, everybody was saying, uh, you know, we got all kinds of, uh, statements from, uh, from various uh, Republicans saying, oh, this is terrible and we should uh, respect our law enforcement. Well, you know, where were you for the last uh, two months since election day? John, I wonder what you were thinking just as you watched it. I mean, did you sort of think that, that it was history unfolding? Uh, what, what did you sort of make of it? Well, there's no question that, Damien, uh, I worked in the Capitol uh, as a member of the press corps in the early 1980s, uh, and, and certainly it, in, in watching it just as infuriating and as heartbreaking as this whole episode was, it seems inexplicable to me that there was not, uh, that law enforcement was not sufficiently prepared for it. Uh, we certainly have had, you know, the president encouraging a big mob uh, or big crowd to assemble in Washington, talking about how it would be wild, Rudy, Rudy Giuliani talking about, you know, uh, ba basically uh, a revolt. Uh, my experience when I was in Washington, and security is far more uh, diligent now than it was back then, uh, you know, before 9-11, before there was a bombing in the Senate cloakroom in the 1980s. Uh, my experience in Washington has always been 
that that there's a show of force that is such a deterrent. And and the fact that these folks were able to just go uh, chart breaking through the doors into the Capitol is is really, I, th I think as we get into the retrospective of this, there's gonna be a lot of questioning of law enforcement and, and how prepared they were or were not. Uh, but I also, as you'll see in our editorial uh, that's online now and in the newspaper tomorrow, um, you have to, President Trump cannot wash his hands of this. He certainly has some culpability. If I could just jump in, I mean, to your point about the Capitol, you know, I haven't been there much in the past year because of the pandemic and the press corps has uh, been creating press pools to allow us to minimize our numbers up there to keep everyone as much as we can safe. But, you know, as someone who has spent, you know, every day of my year almost going in and out of the Capitol working, I mean, it was it was heartbreaking to see those images. And it, it, I, I was absolutely stunned, as you said, John, uh, to see how little was done to prevent these these structures from being overrun, how easily these police lines were overridden, especially when you contrast that with the images we saw over the summer of the brutal force that was deployed against protesters of police violence. Peaceful protesters were tear gassed to disperse before a curfew even came into play. And you had a mob that had spoken of, of going into this armed despite local laws marching towards the Capitol. And they were, there are videos on social media of Capitol Police opening barriers and letting them through. And, you know, taking selfies. Talk. I saw yes, someone so taking another selfies. one of them taking selfies. And there's, there's, you know, already some lawmakers are on the record saying there will be investigations, appropriators who control the purse strings of Capitol Police. You know, Tim Ryan of Ohio told Politico that there will be people who will be unemployed after this. Obviously, there's 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 a federal piece of this that federal law enforcement was not deployed in advance that could have been. There's there's uh Customs and Border Protection, FBI, all these agencies that mobilized troops long after they were already in the Capitol. Why were they not on standby? The National Guard, you know, the great Maggie Haberman of the New York Times is reporting that Trump resisted deploying the National Guard. All of that, you know, aside, it it, it, it defies, you know, the, I'll put this in personal terms. The number of times that I have greeted a Capitol Police officer who are, who are friendly, who are there outside in all weather, I thought, you know, thank goodness that these people are here to protect us in case of something horrible happening. Thankfully, today was not worse than it was. But I, I now, my faith in that protection is seriously undermined. I want to take a quick break. More when we come back on what some are calling an attempted coup at the U.S. Capitol. Fifth and Mission, right after this. You can support Fifth and Mission and the newsroom that creates it by signing up for unlimited Chronicle access at sfchronicle.com slash pod. Welcome back to Fifth and Mission. I'm Damian Bulwa. I'm joined by Joe Garofoli, the host of the It's All Political podcast, Tal Copen, our Washington correspondent, and John Diaz, our editorial page editor, Joe, I want to ask you, there was a lot of reaction today about how these rioters were able to get into the U.S. Capitol and people saying, hey, this seems like disproportionate compared to the things we've seen even in the Bay Area with with Black Lives Matter protesters. Oh, 
Yeah, we saw it when we saw, were at protests uh, here in in Oakland and San Francisco. There was police in riot gear. Even in Washington D.C., when when there were demonstrations, there were, uh, there were police in in full riot gear. We didn't see a lot of that today, uh, and that's what we heard. Or, uh, stories on the ground. Uh, our colleague uh, Tatiana San- Sanchez is writing about this uh, for, in, on sfchronicle.com. And it's uh, it raises a lot of questions. Why was that? And one, we, we cannot dismiss this without talking about race. Uh, the large majority of the protesters, uh, the, the mob today, was white. And that was uh, not the case with the BLM protesters. Yeah, you know, I want to ask you guys, we've, we've, you know, as you know, we've sort of struggled to cover some things that the president does when he is lying about the election incessantly every day. It is very difficult to constantly fact check. It's difficult to put every story on the front page and it sort of becomes kind of a drumbeat. And the question is, what's what is to be done? uh, You know, if someone is going to lie about the election and try to overturn it, when there is no evidence to support it. And everybody sort of struggles to respond to that. And we still don't seem to have an answer. Yeah, I had an interesting conversation with a reporter who uh, covers disinformation. And she was sort of saying, you know, without evidence and 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 baseless. And I, I got sort of frustrated and I said, why can't we just, you know, why do we need to say without evidence, you know, just call it what it is, untrue. And she made the point that, that those who specialize in disinformation, it's very important if you're refuting something to do so by sort of showing the proof, right? Show the work, show the evidence, because you can't, you can't prove a negative. And a lot of someone can make something up. You can't prove that something made up is made up. What you can do is you can, you can demonstrate how truth works, how there is evidence for claims and, you know, kind of poke holes in the other side. And I found that sort of heartening that, that that it still matters to demonstrate, you know, when we report, we show the work, we we explain how we know the things we know, we explain who we talk to, you can t- check their credentials. There's a, a, an unnerving volume of untruth and fiction that is being pushed by many who have a profit motive in continuing that that fiction, including you know networks that pretend that they are news but they are not. They are they're spreading misinformation. On the other side, on the side of truth, I mean, all we can do is continue to show the work uh, and the work, the evidence, everything lines up with this election having been securely conducted and accurately counted uh, in favor of President-elect Joe Biden. Interestingly, uh, President Trump actually got cut off from Twitter today. Uh, His final uh, Twitter of the day uh, was certainly incendiary. He talked about, remember this day forever. He called the people who were out there patriots. Uh, Really, the the whole day of, uh, if anything, he was rationalizing uh, what went on as opposed to condemning uh, his supporters who were out there. Uh, so, so it is a fine line. Uh, and and the, 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 the basic problem is, is in this country, in this time, uh, people are living in alternate universes. Yeah, John, I want to kind of pick up on what Tal said, because you went further in the, in the staff editorial at sfchronicle.com. You write that Donald Trump erased any remaining doubt that he is not just a delusional demagogue, but a clear and present danger to the nation's security, and you said that he needs to be removed from office. Of course, we are 
two weeks away from inauguration day, but but you're still saying that he needs to be removed even in the next 14 days. Yeah, Damien, I'm realistic. I know that it's not going to happen. And, and the avenues would be resignation. That's not going to happen. Uh, the 25th Amendment, very, very, very unlikely. And impeachment, certainly not going to happen. But at the same time, we needed to make the point uh, that his demagoguery is not just polluting the environment, uh, undermining institutions, but is a very direct uh, a threat to American security. Well, we did see some some statements, not by a few people, some forceful statements, I, some resignations, even as we speak, have been coming in, but sort of around the edges. Joe, I'm wondering, what does the next two weeks hold and and what does the future hold and where does the Republican Party go from here? I, I think that's that's the big question that, that, that we're going to be looking at. I'm certainly going to be looking at that is Trump will be gone, but Trumpism will last beyond him. What does what will the lasting effect of what happened today be? Uh, does this kind of, you know, 74 million Americans voted for the president, six million Californians voted for him. What are they going to think about this? Are they going to think, are they going to still be on the train? Are they still going to be uh, paying attention to what he said? Um, uh, that is the outstanding question. What will his post-election, uh, post-inauguration power be? You know, it, the, the, the shelf life of ex-presidents is like when you, when you have a car and you drive it off the lot. <laughs> it, it instantly devalues. Um, what is, uh, but President Trump is different. No other president, ex-president has had 88 million Twitter followers or, or, or been such a master of uh, various platforms, media platforms, and, or, or really had a, that much of a devoted following. What's going to happen and what will today do to taint that? If, it, if anything. The corollary is what political careers may have been ruined today, you know, that aren't Trump's, but were young up and comers who made a calculation to, you know, hitch their cart to Trump and, uh, you know, are now on the record in the shadow of what we saw today uh, with, you know, the insurrectionists flying a Trump flag from the U.S. Capitol. Let, let's let's throw out a couple names. I think one of them, one Californian who was went out there is Mike Garcia, the first uh, first ish term uh, congressman from uh, Southern California, Los Angeles County. Um, he, you know, he said he was going to back these these challenges to uh, the the message today. He, in in a way, he enabled what was going on today, and that's that's a weird position for him to take. He's he is in a in a battleground district. How is that going to hurt him? Or is it going to hurt him? Are, are people's attention spans so short that in two years when he's up for re-election, they'll be like, oh, what? what? That, the, the coup? What? I forgot about that. I don't know. I, I, I hope I'm not. Americans aren't too cynical to, to forget what happened today. Well, accountability has been obviously an, an issue. You need accountability for politicians to do the right thing. But I want to leave you guys with one thing. Are you at all concerned that today we're talking in the evening We've all we've been talking about is Donald Trump again on a day when Joe Biden did gain both chambers uh, of Congress and which will help his agenda a lot. And it was a big day for the Democrats. And we're still talking about the outgoing president. No question. And, and I have to say, Joe, you had a really good story the other day uh, about what uh, a, a Democratic Senate will mean for uh, California, including Kamala Harris. Certainly a huge uh, she may become one of the, the 
if not the most influential vice presidents uh, in history. Uh, you talked about what it meant for the delegation. Um, I think it's and what some of the issues that Californians care about. Um, so yes, it was consequential, but that's a what a Trumpian moment that we're talking about him. Uh, and and for Donald Trump, there's no such thing as bad publicity. Although I have to say, I think this is going to loom very large in his legacy. All right, well, let's leave it there, guys. Thank you so much for joining me. Thanks, thank Amy. you. Thanks, bud. Thanks to my guest today, editorial page editor at The Chronicle, John Diaz, Tal Copen, our Washington correspondent, and Joe Garofoli. He's the host of the It's All Political podcast. You can find that wherever you get Fifth and Mission. Thanks also to the producer of this episode, King Kaufman, and thank you for listening. <laughs>